It's very difficult for Manchester United to stop that. What do you want them to do? Come out and deny every single link. With 22 links to different players on one day last week alone. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Duggan with you through to five. Now, with the GA season ending, Ireland winning in New Zealand and the golf majors coming to a close, football has been on the back burner in people's minds. So the new Premier League season may catch us by surprise. It starts in less than two weeks, Friday, August 5th. And joining me to look ahead now to the new campaign is the chief football writer at the independent newspaper in the UK, Miguel Delaney. Miguel, how's the form? Not too bad, not too bad. Um, the football actually hasn't been finished for me because I've been doing the... Uh... The women's Euros. So oh, I'm a little good. bit primed going into the new season. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it'll properly kick off. And well, because it's not just the Premier League kicking off, of course. It's um, it's re- like w- the way we've been talking about it over here and media and that the Premier League start almost marks the kind of the build up to possibly the most <laughs> intense period of football we've seen. Well, I mean, the post um, project restart period was because they had to cram in so much football was intense. But this, because it's coming up to the World Cup, which is, of course, has, has crunched the calendar. It's going to make it. Um, it's going to make it a very intense time, and I think actually have a huge influence on the season as well. In what way? Like I was just thinking of the the biggest club in terms of success recently is Manchester City. Like Erlen Haaland going to be even playing at the World Cup? Well, I mean, but that but that's part of it because I mean, uh, like I think the, the way to look at this season, and it, I think it's it's quite coincidental that it falls at a time when the, the Premier League is going to be celebrating its 30th anniversary, and in those 30 years it's basically become almost the Super League in itself. It is pretty much, certainly in terms of domestic leagues, the biggest show in town. It's like Serie A look to it as an example. La Liga are kind of obsessed with trying to catch up with it. The amount of money it brings in. But but it's quite interesting. Just as it celebrates that, it's kind of disrupted by the one thing that could kind of probably claim to still be bigger, the bit like, you know, something with, with that real prestige and gravitas, the World Cup. Uh, and I think what it will do as well is it will actually... It, it will distort the season because I mean, if you think about, it, I suppose, the first half of the season is almost—I uh, don't want to say a phony war because obviously, like, but, but but players will have the World Cup in their minds, and I mean, we, we we've seen it say in other seasons coming to World Cups, so particularly the case with teams who are say on the beach in the last few months. You know, they can say they don't want to get injured for the World Cup, all of that. That's not really possible at the start of the season, but it, but it, I think it has to have some sort of subconscious effect. Then in the second half of the season, we'll have, as you mentioned, people like Haaland, who will be super fit from a break. And those, like, I mean, look what happened with England, say, in um, in Euro 2020, in the Euro 2020 final. And a lot of those players suffered quite long psychological hangovers. Harry Kane wasn't the same for a few months. Harry Maguire, obviously, ongoing issues. And that with that um, emph- or emphasized by other, by other problems with his club. And there was a few England players like that. So say, say another, another major nation with a lot of Premier League players France being another, suffer some sort of heartbreak like that. I mean, it it, do, it does take a while to recover after something as intense as a World Cup. While on the other side, you'll have players who've had a month off. So I, I from that perspective, I think, I, I would say Manchester City are indeed the favourites, of course, although I suppose we can come to that in a moment. Uh, but just because of the way the season has knocked off kilter a bit, it's, it's, it's one of those that at least has more potential than most for some sort of surprise winner or some sort of surprise results. Tottenham to win a title. I mean, I suppose that's the one people are kind of, you know, trying to go as a dark horse right now because Conte's got his team together. But but I, I think that's the kind of um, major factor in the season. And it's one that is kind of um, underscored a bit, just as you mentioned them there, by the fact that 
for the first time in half a decade, the two leading clubs who've been so dominant um, and, and, and well, I mean, City have been the true dominance, but Liverpool have returned this amazing po- points return. C- City and Liverpool are both making considerable changes. So Pep Guardiola is basically undergoing an, an overhaul of the squad that he wanted last season with, with, with the attack reshaped. And Klopp, even though it's only one signing, it does change the face of Liverpool because suddenly for the first time in five years, that, that attacking trio has been broken up. The way they'll play has been changed because Nunes is such a different type of player to, to Sadio Mane. And it just kind of fosters this sense that uh, there might be something a little bit different about this season. Yeah, and the style of play, as you said there, number nine's coming into the equation. Obviously for City, they might be unassailable with Calvin Phillips joining them as well, but it's all about winning the Champions League for them. The more and more it goes on, Miguel, that Pep doesn't win it, it becomes more and more of an albatross. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think... Um... <laughs> I mean, there is an argument to be made that it's actually the only remaining interesting thing about Manchester City because, you know, it's a discussion we've had on the show before. They're basically, they're, you know, a, a sports washing project. Abu Dhabi is all, well, basically, they have, they're this, you know, the most lavishly funded sporting project that, that, ever, that pretty much ever existed, which has translated into this utter domination in England now. So it's what's four and five titles going for five and six. But to the point that really, because of the nature of it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like it fires that emotion. It's almost it almost feels like with some fans because it's almost accepted due to City's wealth that they they will win. They become almost a, so like basically for Manchester United fans or uh, it's per se it's more acceptable that City win than Liverpool win because uh, it's almost it's it's or for for Arsenal fans it would be see it would be preferable that City win and Tottenham. But so like they 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 become doesn't there's, there's not that much narrative around them even. But where that's different, of course, as you say, is Europe, and 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 there is there is this kind of remaining intrigue that one of the probably the wealthiest sports outfit on the planet, uh, bar maybe Paris Saint Germain or Newcastle, but we'll see what happens there. Uh, still hasn't they still can't get over the line in the Champions League because of the kind of that magical nature of knockout football. For Liverpool, they've snapped up Darwin Nunes. Uh, Harvey Elliott is fit now. Mane's left. Is there a bit of standing still with Liverpool? Uh, are, are they as equipped as they've ever been to challenge City for the title? Or with the London clubs now spending money and trying to compete to get closer to the top two, are Liverpool going to be facing challenges this season? Um, I suppose well, ultimately, when you, because it's Klopp, uh, because of where they've been for so long, I'd probably still have them to finish second. Maybe Tottenham run, run them close. Um but but I suppose I mean some of it comes down to it's the old kind of uh, Sir Alex Ferguson maxim, uh, and it, it's one of those things that regardless of how the game evolves, because it's down to psychology, I think it's true where you have to change something about your team every three four years to prevent it from going stale. Which which this which letting Mane go and bringing in Nunes has done. Nunes is an interesting one. Um, he's really only had I mean there's so much talent there, but he's really only had one season of um, I suppose eye-catching football for a top club. So it does represent at least some risk. And I, I, I say this with a very heavy caveat. I'm not saying he's going to be a flop, but <laughs> given the way this, uh, given some of the discussion in, in, in pre-season, there are at least the ingredients for one of those flops. He, he's, he's coming in to replace a hero. He involves a change of style. He's only had a year really of top football. He, 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 um, he has to adjust to the Premier League. He's cost the sort of money that would usually be reserved for Top top talent, basically for for basically best best in the world money. That, that's what it is. That's what it does represent. 
So again, I'm not saying he's going to be a flop. It's more so there's so much stacked up there that if he if, if he doesn't score in two three games, it'd be one of those things where pressure escalates. But Klopp being Klopp, I would um I would fully expect Liverpool even if there are initial teething problems with Nunes. Although he did he did you know get a hat full of goals, uh in in the um in the preseason friendly on Thursday. But even if there are teething problems there, it is Klopp, and I would still expect Liverpool to resurface. But then again, it, it has been what. Five years now, these four or five years of these two teams being at the uh, at the very top in the way they are, you would think that has to kind of distort at some point. So maybe, maybe it's this season. Um, yeah. But I could, but again, and I don't mean to repeat myself, but you just can't get away from the fact it's Klopp there, who for me is still, is actually probably the best manager in the world now. The disruptor, then, do you see that as Tottenham six signings? Uh, Conte, this is not about building for five years. This is now about challenging for trophies, which Spurs don't win. So, Basuma's gone in there. Richarlison, you'd have to think Harry Kane and Richarlison will want to be in great form going to the World Cup. So Spurs, do you think they're serious now contenders to push the top two closer? Well, it, it's Conte's def- differential, isn't it? I mean, he's probably one of, along with Klopp, Guardiola, maybe Nagelsmann, there'll be some doubts there. Um, part of that kind of a group of maybe five, six coaches that are really top level. Uh, Conte is a difference maker. You know, you can you can, you can can see, even, even the fact he went to Inter, broke Juventus' dominance, that, of course, in his second season, in a way that used to be said about Jose Mourinho. Not that it's a kind of an identical thing, but more so it takes a bit of time for a, a squad to fully buy in and understand his methods. And once that happens, and once he gets the signing he needs, which he has now, um, having really impressed on the Spurs board. You like, I remember uh, I, I was covering Chelsea quite closely when he took over there in 2016, and very early. Then, in fact, I think he actually said it in Euro 2016 when they were when they were in um, Ireland's group. Um, the line was basically, uh, "I want to create a small war machine," and that, that, Tottenham have that feeling now, and kind of this kind of really tight unit know exactly what he wants, and it's why I do think they could be. Um, particularly dangerous this season. Arsenal have signed Gabriel Jesus. Chelsea have signed Raheem Sterling. Like the investments are still going to go into Chelsea. So those other London clubs, what's your expectation around them? Um, it's an, it's an odd one, I have to say, because I actually think, I expect progress from both Arsenal and Chelsea. But is it sufficient progress to get into the top four or to do what they want to do? I mean, from everyone who talked to around Arsenal, Gabriel Jesus had a huge impact on the squad already. They've been actually kind of a bit... Um, they knew he was a good player, but they've almost been surprised the extent of his quality. And it, it does feel like it's one of those cases where you had one of these really good players in a super squad, which he, he wasn't always in the team, which and, and it meant his kind of actual abilities got overlooked a little bit. But now he's he's been entrusted with a main role. It's really bringing out the best in him. So I would expect him to hit the ground running, bring Arsenal up a level. But then Arsenal are still in a slightly transitional period, although you would say the kind of... Um, Time, time is running out for Arteta, but there comes a point where you, you can't keep looking to kind of we're building to the future. Uh, there has to be deliverance at some point, and we may be close to that, which you create a certain pressure. Whether they're as well resourced as, as resourced as the rest of um, the old big six, I think that's really open to question. They might just squeezed out just by virtue of that that they don't have as many good players in their prime as other teams. Chelsea do still have a, that kind of core squad. And Sterling gives them something different. It's also much closer to the attack that Tuchel wants, given just that it just didn't work for him with Lukaku. And of course, it's one reason why they ultimately didn't go over Cristiano Ronaldo either. Yeah. And does he need to leave Manchester United now for everybody's sake, Cristiano well, Ronaldo? <laughs> He's got, there's no market for him. I mean, it's quite, it must be quite a reality check for Ronaldo, but 
George Mendes basically offered him around a half a Europe's big clubs that would that might do a deal. None wanted him. Um, it kind of speaks to where he is as a thirty-seven-year-old, having yes been one of the one of the best players of all time. You'd say again in the old debate, I'd always have had Messi ahead of him. But even if Ronaldo's the second best player in the world over that time, that's that's not it still speaks to his immense quality. But but like anyone, age is catching up. And United found last season that while if you got him the ball in the right area, he would still he was still an absolute guarantee of goals. That's what he's so good at. But he's just not as mobile as he used to be. And that presents problems for top teams, especially when at the top level of the game, so much of it is based on heavy pressing, coordinated movements. And it's more difficult to do with a striker who can no longer move that much. And so while I do agree with you, it, it'd probably actually be best for everyone if he needs to go. There's nowhere to go to. Not even the States, no? Um, well, I mean, the other side of it, of course, is that Ronaldo himself, one of the reasons he wants to go is he wants to challenge, the cha- he, he wants to win one more Champions League and Manchester United are in the competition. So that was yeah. that, that's why Mendes went to kind of a core of those clubs, but there were no takers. What about the soap opera that is Man U? Is Eric Ten Hag capable of calming that down, playing good pressing football, good attacking football, and and getting a bit of stability to United and getting them back up to the table? I mean, I think I'd probably have them back in the top four. So um, when you were like when you when you stand back, whatever anything else, Ten Hag is an excellent coach. Who I mean, we're talking about kind of modern principles of football. He subscribes to all of them. Uh, and he's also on an upward curve. And that is basically different to every single Manchester United manager they've had since Alex Ferguson. Moyes and Solskjaer never up to it. Van Gaal and Mourinho passed their best. Um, Ten Hag is different to that. So it's already kind of an advantage. I think, again, you, you don't want to read too much in the preseason. Same with, same with Nunes. But um, there have been some responses from kind of squad players who would have been discarded, like Martial. Uh, and I think ultimately he'll just give Manchester United a better shape, a better structure, uh, and there'll be um, considerable pickup. Um, the other side of it is, though, I suppose there's still so much to fix at United. Uh, it is conspicuous that it's as if kind of their <laughs> their, their entire summer and so their plans this summer are influenced by Ajax. They've taken Ajax as manager. They've gone for a player who was in competition for uh, with Ajax in Masiara from Feyenoord. That's fair enough. But then he wants. The, his linchpin on his best team at Ajax in 2019, Frankie de Jong. He's already brought in an, a, a player shaped by Ajax in Christian Eriksen. Um, there's at least two other Ajax signings he wants to make. Um, and it, <laughs> and of course, Manchester United have had a long-standing interest in the role goalkeeper, Van der Sar, who's in an executive go- um, uh, role at Ajax. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, given Ajax are a very progressive club who've overachieved in the last few years. There are questions over the jump from the Eredivisie to uh, England. I mean, and, and you don't even go as far down as the Eredivisie. Look, look at some of, the, some of the struggles that Bundesliga players have had. If you talk to people in football, they think the Dutch league and the German league are, because they're, because they're kind of flux leagues with so many young players, so much pressing that there's not much baseline. So it's actually very difficult to predict who will adapt to kind of a, t- uh, a top league, or like, well, who will adapt to England, sorry, and who won't. Um, so that may create, create a, de- a degree of uncertainty. And there's also that sense, well, United have made so much to kind of talk about building a new era and imposing an ideolo- ideology on the club at last. What they've ultimately done is basically what they've done with pretty much all managers, or to a greater degree, admittedly, because given that Mourinho got frustrated. But it's basically given the manager exactly what he wants when he first comes in. That's fine if the manager works out long term, which obviously it has with Klopp and Guardiola. But it's an issue 
if he fails. And as has happened, as, as is basically one of the major issues of Manchester United, where that squad right now is a mismatch of the ideas of different managers. It's like it's basically four or five components in there. Now, but I suppose the, the other side of that is Ten Hag is unlike his predecessors, is either a good enough or a kind of um a coach at the right point of his career to maybe make more of those players than uh, any of those who preceded him. So Newcastle is a consolidation with Eddie Howe this season? Um, well, they've had real issues in the transfer market. Uh, I think part of that is because they ultimately don't want to... Uh, everyone knows they're owned, they're owned by Saudi Arabia. They're, 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 they're another sports-washing project that warrants a lot of criticism. And, so, and I must say, given the nature of the Newcastle project, there are, there are times when I think talking to them about them in purely football terms, it should always be caveated. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's precisely because of everyone knows they have that money that they've been quoted high prices. Other clubs have made it difficult for them in the market and they're not willing to go to those prices, which has meant not that the squad has stagnated. They probably did enough in January. Um, but um, maybe they haven't had the kick on in terms of uh, signings they would have wanted. But now, of course, Howe's got a full summer. So that should have, I mean, and he's a good coach in his own right. So that should have some impact. And you would expect... Newcastle to at least be mid-table or maybe kind of knocking on the door of that of that top six. In fact, there's quite an interesting bracket there of those clubs that have recently kind of been trying to get into the top six, West Ham, Leicester, Newcastle. Um, and there's probably a, a good deal of kind of volatility there. And Aston Villa with Steven Gerrard and Everton with Frank Lampard and Leeds, obviously, with the, all those I mean, clubs uh, of huge uh, Irish support, I, you know. Obviously, unless, unless Everton are bought, are bought, and from talking to people this week, I'd have concerns for them again. Right. Uh, Leeds are a bit of an unknown quantity. Um, we, I mean, Jesse Marsh gets a full, a first full summer as well. They sold big players, but that's actually quite good business because I suppose they sold players a huge profit and region. That that's all a club like, uh, like Leeds at this point in football history with the way it's structured can do. Uh, and in fact, to some degree, as Villa are finding out, and, and has been one of the reasons for Everton's fall. If you try and go too big, too much it can lead to waste and maybe a sense of kind of underachieving. And and Villa themselves have got. I don't want to say a strange squad, but they're they're in an interesting position. Maybe last season didn't quite go as as well as it was initially suggested under Gerard. So there's a little, not, not to just pressure there, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Be interesting as well from an Irish perspective. Nathan Collins going to Wolves, Gavin Bazunu to Southampton. Hopefully they'll flourish, and I'm sure Stephen Kenny just wants to see players play first team football. Yeah, that's it. I mean, what, what, I mean, we must have in in the history of the Premier League at least whatever about the the first division prior to that, given football has become a much more globalised game, so you can't really compare. But we have such a kind of a low percentage of players, uh, or a historically low percentage of players in the top division. Now, I, I, because of that, because the Premier League is so globalised, I think that's something we, all, we we should often keep in context because ultimately, you know, unlike the early 90s where there's a foreigner rule where there wasn't as much money in England, England is basically now, it's, it's where, because there's so much money in it, it's a truly globalised league where basically anyone from any, it's a fully open market almost, where almost anyone on the planet can go. So that means the threshold is much higher. So it's just much more difficult for Irish players to get in. Um, there's no shame in that, but there's maybe concern about kind of where more of our squad are playing. But yeah, certainly you would think this could be a big season for Nathan Collins. I was almost really surprised that, uh, not to disparage Wolves, but that some bigger clubs didn't come in for him uh, because there's real, there's real potential there. And yeah, certainly he's maybe someone that Stephen Kenny will hope can can really kick on and become a leader of this team. 
So there's no shame, as you're saying, if lads are playing for the championship clubs like Josh Cullen's now going to Burnley, this kind of thing. No, no, no. I think I think it's just the, the way football has gone now. In fact, the championship is actually one of the... <laughs> that's actually forgotten either. That's actually one of the wealthiest leagues. I think it's what, maybe the fifth. Maybe that's a little bit high. Maybe the sixth or seventh wealthiest league in the world now. Um, well, or certainly in Europe. Yeah. So when we get to November, December, is it going to be a case that the absurdity of Qatar, uh, Miguel, and the migrant workers dying will be just forgotten about and everybody will just uh, blind themselves to the party? I, I, I don't think so. I think there's going to be huge discussion around it right throughout. Uh, there is a danger that once it starts, um, people try and get away from it. Personally, speaking as a journalist, that shouldn't be allowed. It should come up all the time. In fact, it's, it's going to be 100 days until Qatar in the next three weeks. So I expect some coverage about what's being done then because at the moment the federations involved haven't done anywhere near enough they haven't even made basically grand gestures none of them have so far committed to supporting the campaign that all of the human rights groups came together for which is pay up FIFA which is that FIFA should uh, donate the the equivalent amounts uh, that constitutes their prize money for the World Cup which is just under 500 um, million dollars towards compensation to uh the, the families of migrant workers and uh, migrant workers have suffered. Not one federation has yet supported that. Uh, now, you could make all sorts of... I mean, there's bigger discussions here in a bigger context, given that uh, it was put to me during the week that um, the fact there's a global energy crisis means uh, you get a lot less, a lot fewer politicians, say, willing to get behind this momentum to criticise this Qatar World Cup. Um, but uh, I don't think it should be forgotten about. And I don't think, at least from certain quarters of the media, it will be allowed to, and certainly pressure should be put on. The I mean, I, I, I'm I'm not one of those who thinks that teams should boycott the World Cup, primarily because I think it's very. I mean, I, I was thinking about this in relation to Wales recently. Imagine if Ireland's there are historic nation unifying, nation building moments at Italian ninety. Imagine if that had been in Qatar. We just had the bad luck to finally qualify when it's in a country like Qatar, and you could apply similar to the players' sense. Some of them only get one chance at a World Cup. Then suddenly it just happens to be when it's in Qatar, through no fault of their own, not their decision. And then they're asked to carry the burden and responsibility of boycotting it for someone else's decision. So I think that's unfair to put on players. But at the same time, if players are going, they should use their considerable leverage to at least try and affect some change, uh, put pressure on. Uh, and I think that, that that's where the real discussion lies now, because this World Cup is happening. It's going to be televised all over the world. And now we have to try and adapt around that. Will it be on the very surface of glossy World Cup with the stadiums full with fans, you know, their experience being in inverted commas, okay? So will the PR be a success? Um, funny enough, I was talking to someone, I, I think it will be a World Cup with a lot of issues. There's not enough accommodation in Qatar. There's not enough things to do. Uh, and I don't just mean drinking, basically. <laughs> Although that will in, in itself be difficult for fans. I was there for the draw. And even like at that point, no, they, they will relax some rules. But for the draw... I mean, even and this is only the draw to to try and get to try and book a meal in any of the restaurants, which are most of them being in in five star hotels where where people can drink alcohol. It was very it was very difficult, or close to impossible. So what's what it's going to be like when suddenly a million a million fans come in? There's only forty four thousand hotel rooms in Qatar. So even yesterday, I was being told that um the uh, the family of some of the England players, what they're going to do is. A lot of them is basically stay in Dubai and either take regular flights down to Qatar or else take a six-hour drive. And there's going to be a lot of people doing that with flights, which, of course, creates another discussion around this World Cup. It's environmental cost. Um, 
I don't think it's going to be, say, even speaking from a journalistic perspective, I mean, this is something where we do get a little bit self-indulgent, I suppose, and it's one of the privileges of the job. As you know yourself, we were just talking about how um, we've seen each other at previous World Cups. Uh, But part of it is going to another culture, experiencing that football culture, kind of getting lost in a country for a while. Whereas um, Qatar... I'm not sure we'll allow that. And of course, there's no getting away from the fact you're surrounded by an infrastructure that's been built on, you know, the the abuse of migrant workers. Uh, and it doesn't sit very comfortably. Absolutely. Miguel Delaney, Chief Football Writer of the UK Independent. Thanks so much for speaking to Off the Ball Saturday. 